I'm Peter Adamson, and you're listening to the History of Philosophy podcast, brought to you with the support of King's College London and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about medieval logic with Katerina Dutel Novaes, who is Associate Professor at the Department of Theoretical Philosophy at the University of Groningen. Hi, Katerina. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hello. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so as a preliminary question, I've just said we're going to be talking about medieval logic, and I'm wondering whether that really makes sense. Do medieval philosophers even have a defined notion of logic as a discipline? And if they do, how would they explain the difference between logic and other areas of philosophy? Okay, well, let me start by saying that everything I will say uh, to, during this interview pertains to the Latin authors, the authors who were writing in Latin. So I will not say every time the Latin medieval authors, but uh, it should be clear that I, it's not that I'm disregarding all the other traditions, you know, which were active at the same time and who, which were not writing in Latin. But so about the Latin medieval authors, uh, they, in fact, didn't care much about the issue of the scope of logic as much as modern uh, philosoph contemporary philosophers of logic do, and logicians. So there's this big ongoing debate in philosophy of logic on criteria of demarcation for logical constants, and that's because many people now seem to think that uh, this is the best, perhaps even the only way to demarcate logic as a discipline, right? to demarcate the, logical, the class of logical constants. And, and they also feel that they, it's impossible to understand logic as such unless we have a clear criterion a clear demarcation of logic from the other disciplines. And my feeling is that this is a bit of a Kantian influence, or this obsession with demarcations and borders, etc. But so the, the medieval philosophers were not engaging in this project. They were not actively looking for sharp ways to demarcate logic from other disciplines. That's not something they were concerned about. But this being said, they do offer considerations on what counts as logic, and one place where this typically happens is at the prefaces of their big sums of logic works, right? So they had these big textbooks in logic, and very often the very first one or two pages they're saying what, what logic is all about and why logic is important, and that's why, you know, the student will do well to, you know, go on and study all of it through their th through their textbooks. And so two people who do this, for example, are two of the main uh, 14th century logicians, uh, William of Ockham and John Burida. And then in, in they say, for example, uh, that logic concerns reasoning, that it concerns the principles to establish the truth and falsity of propositions, it concerns uh, producing new knowledge, so they, they say many things along these lines. And also, also some authors, so many authors, uh, say that one of the main uh, purposes of logic is uh, to teach people how to engage in disputations, in debates. So that's also thought to be an important function for logic, which of course ties up with Aristotle and, and say the topics and the sophisticated refutations, which are also about you know debates. But so despite the fact that they, that despite their lack of interest in the question of a sharp demarcation for the logic as a discipline, logic as such was a fairly well-defined discipline. 
And there are two main reasons for that. Well, two main ways to think about this, the unity of logic at the time. One is purely institutional, you might say. You call, might call it purely institutional, which is that logic was a to- one of the topics taught to students very early on in the standard curriculum. It was part of the trivium together with grammar and rhetoric. And so that's really pretty much the first thing that students would learn, even as you know they were very, very young when they learned that, so even like 14 years old, they were already learning logic. And, uh, and this for many reasons, and one of them is that also there was the thought that logic, knowledge of logic was thought to play a fundamental role for other so-called higher disciplines like law, theology, and medicine. So logic was supposed to provide the foundations for, for any intellectual inquiry. So it was very important. And actually that's something that's uh, common between late antique philosophy and medieval philosophy. Absolutely. So this idea that logic is the first thing you study and then logic comes first absolutely yeah so that is that is absolutely there and so that's why logic had a very important role to play on the one hand there's also sometimes the thought that logic was for schoolboys right (laughs) so many of the latin authors what they did is they wrote on logic at the early stages of their career and then the serious ones then moved on to one of the other disciplines, and in particular theology, which was supposed to be the, the most, you know, like the most uh, noble one of them. And and one exception to this is, for example, John Buridan, who I just mentioned. He's one of the few people who have stayed at the arts faculty throughout his career. Right, So he did not move on to become a, a doctor in theology. He did not move on to write on theological matters. And by contrast, William of Ockham, who I also just mentioned, did exactly the opposite, did what most other auth- you know, important authors did, which was to first write on logic you know, as a young man, as a master of art, and then move on to write on theology and, and other more important, some so-called more important topics. But anyway, so that's one observation. And the other thing is that uh, besides this, you know, institutional factor that made logic, you know, a coherent role, uh, whole, there's also the influence of the logical writings of Aristotle, which really provided the main background for the development of medieval logic, especially starting at the 13th century. So that's what I'm saying here now, that the role of Aristotle is not to be found, not certainly not to the same extent in the 12th century and before, but from the 13th century onward, when the logical writings of Aristotle uh, became widely read again in the Latin world, right? And so that, just to be clear, the categories and on interpretation were read throughout and people had knowledge of syllogistic through Boethius, but they didn't read the analytics, the posterior analytics, the topics, the sophistic refutations, they didn't read that. And this picked up again in the 13th century, and from there on, Aristotle really was the main kind of, you know, figure that gave unity to the discipline too. And, uh, and f- again, Buridam and Ockham, who I've been mentioning quite a few times already, both explicitly mention Aristotle in their prefaces to, the, to their big logic compendia. So the, basically the conception of what logic is, is one of the many things that changed because of the reintroduction of the complete works of Aristotle into the Latin tradition. Absolutely. And, and in fact, there's even, there are even names for that in the Latin tradition. So already back in the, in the, in the medieval times, there was a well-known distinction between logica vetus, which means old logic, logica nova, which means new logic, and logica modernorum, which means modern logic. The logica vetus category was uh, used to describe the material pertaining to the 
texts by Aristotle that had been known throughout, as I said, the categories and the um, interpretation. And, and this tradition continued. So, of course, in the 12th century, that's pretty much all there is. Uh, and some sometimes people think that in the 13th, 14th century, this kind of these discussions were abandoned, but that's not true. They continued to talk about, as so all these discussions on universals and on categories pertain to logica vetus. Logica nova uh, uh, is the category where you find works that deal explicitly with the new, so-called new texts by Aristotle, new in the sense that they became available again, and this is the sophistic refutations, uh, the topics, and the, and the two analytics. And, and so Logica Nova is when people are commenting on these particular texts and are writing questions on these texts, so in really engaging with these texts. So it's still Aristotle, but it's the so-called new Aristotle. And then Logica Modernorum were the developments which were some, you know, to in numerous ways related to Aristotle's uh, logical writings, but were you know, innovations, medieval innovations. So, for example, the theory of obligaciones, which is a particular kind of uh, debating uh, technique, uh, which was very uh, influential in the 14th century, that doesn't connect in any direct way to the work of uh, Aristotle, and so that's why it's called Logica Modernorum. Another concept is the concept of supposition, which is the main uh, notion in the medieval theories of semantics, right, in the medieval theories of what propositions, sentences mean. And uh, that's also part of the Logica Modernorum. Okay. So, obviously, from what you've just said, there's lots and lots of things we could talk about here. Yes, Lots absolutely. of topics that yes. get covered within, actually, all three of those branches of medieval logic. And from all these things, I thought we could focus on just one because you've published about it. Um, and this is the question of whether medieval logic is formal and what it would even mean for logic to be formal. So before we get into the formality of medieval logic, um, let's just talk about this phrase, formal logic. So this is a word you sometimes see thrown around. For example, it's used in the name of courses you can take at universities. Yeah. I'm studying formal logic. Presumably this doesn't mean logic while wearing evening wear, right? It must <laughs> have some other meaning. So, yes. so what, what do we nowadays mean when we say that logic is formal? Yes. Well, this is actually a very difficult question. A very interesting, very important question, but also very difficult. Uh, so I, uh, in fact, the main problem is that, as you say, people use the, it's a set phrase in a sense, formal logic, and people use it very, very liberally and very often, and yet often uh, people are talking past each other because there are different meanings of formal of the adjective formal as applied to formal logic and these meanings are all kind of floating around and so the set phrase is being used in equivocal ways and often people are not aware of that and so because I was worried about this situation of people talking past each other I once wrote a paper called the different ways in which logic is said to be formal where I wanted precisely to do a taxonomy of these different ways in which people talk about logic as being formal nowadays, but also actually going back in history. And there I distinguished eight senses, eight, so that's quite a lot, <laughs> different senses of formal relevant for logic. And, uh, and so, so right to try to organize a bit these debates. 
And I just want to mention that I was not the first one to do this. John McFarlane had already done work in this direction. It was very, for me, it was very influential, but there were things that I thought could be done even better than he had done. And that was why I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to write this paper. That's how research works. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I don't want people to think that I'm saying I'm the first one who worried about this. No, McFarlane, if not, you know, at least McFarlane had mm. done serious work on this. You are the first person to discuss it on this podcast. So. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> you get primacy there. Okay. So just of the eight senses that I distinguish in this paper, I'll just briefly mention three, which may come across as familiar to, to, to some of the listeners. So one is the formal schematic, which is the sense of formality that one typically encounters in the first pages of logic textbooks. When people explain what is logic all about, they say, well, you know, logic deals with arguments and, and we're interested in the you know the the schemes that underlie arguments and so we are you know not interested in the non-logical words that are occurring in the argument where only we take them out and we just focus on the scheme and we study these schemes so it's like using variables yes well yeah or or schematic letters i mean so right. there's this okay. important distinction between schematic letters and variables mm -hmm. but that that's exactly the idea right so you have all a is b all b is c therefore all a is c that's a schema Okay. Right? And, and right. the letters are taking the place of terms that you can fill in and produce real arguments. So that's a very, you know, very, still very uh, pervasive sense of formal. But then there's also the form of as total abstraction from meaning, which became in the 20th century became a rather influential notion of the formal. And I call this notion of the formal formal as desemantification. And here you can think of people like Hilbert and Bernays who have written, you know, on this notion. And then the other, uh, another important sense for modern logicians is the formal as computable, and that is understood as formal as pertaining to operations that can be carried out mechanically, which don't require insight or ingenuity. And so just to go back to our medieval authors, I want to say that so the, the formal schematic has its roots in Latin medieval logic. So it's very important, and that's one of the things I did. So I have this entry in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy on medieval theories of consequence. One of the things I wanted to do there was to trace the history of the notion of the formal schematic, going back to the Latin medieval authors. And But these other senses that I was talking about are, for the most part, later editions. So they're not as relevant for us when we're talking about uh, medieval authors. Actually, if, when we talk about formal logic, I, I, since, as you were saying before, the context for medieval logic is so deeply Aristotelian, even for the old logic, it was Aristotelian, it's, it calls to mind immediately the Aristotelian distinction between form and matter. So to what extent does that distinction play a role in the ancient and medieval conception of logic? Do they think of logic as being formal in the sense that it has to do with form rather than matter? Yeah, so this is really also one of the things that got me going on this research, right? I thought, like, you know, the notion of form and formal is so important in current debates in philosophy of logic. and But, I mean, ultimately, it should go back to Aristotle, I thought, right? So how, how does Everything this... goes back to Aristotle. <laughs> That's true in any case, but I think in this case in particular, I thought people were not sufficiently aware of the metaphysical Aristotelian roots of this, sometimes I call it this ideology, the logical form ideology, 
and uh, and the negative connotation is intended <laughs> but uh, uh, and so I thought that you know you really needed to go back and try to understand the presuppositions that are being taken for granted when people are thinking about these matters and I thought one way to do this is to go all the way back to Aristotle and understand to which extent the Aristotelian distinction between form and matter is was really you know the starting point for this tradition so uh, and then what happened was that I uh, quickly discovered and this is something that has been a acknowledged by other people before me, that Aristotle himself does not apply the form matter, the metaphysical form matter distinction to arguments, to logical or linguistic objects, with two exceptions, one passage in the physics and one in the metaphysics, and they're virtually identical, these two passages, by the way. That's the only, the, the two only places where he does that. And so, and so, and then I was quite struck by this. I thought, well, funny, huh? <clears throat> and that's something that John McFarlane also says. Aristotle is the father of hylomorphism. Aristotle is the father of logic, but he's not the father of logical hylomorphism. Right? <laughs> he doesn't mix the two things. And so that's an interesting observation. And so I thought, you know, what happened in between? Why do we now apply form and matter so extensively to, to logic? And, and the first step in this development was, uh, well, I guess you could say the first step, the first step after I started, the first important step is with the ancient commentators, uh, which I know have been extensively covered by, by this series of podcasts, and rightly so, because they're <laughs> wonderful. And, uh, and the first person that we know of having applied the formatted distinction specifically to arguments is Alexander of Aphrodisias. And so we don't know for sure whether he was picking up from a source that we now no longer have, or if he really was, if it was an innovation by him. We don't know that for sure. Uh, but he then really starts talking about the form and matter of syllogisms, right? And applying these two concepts to syllogisms. And, uh, and so... Uh, that's, that's a big transformation. So you may ask yourself, is it that Aristotle thought that arguments were not the kinds of entities which would have form and matter as constituent elements? Uh, right. So, I mean, that goes back to the discussion of Aristotle's metaphysics, of met Aristotle's hylomorphism. What kinds of entities actually do have form and matter? And that's a big debate in you know, Aristotle's scholarship, which I'm going to leave aside. But uh, so, so then apparently Aristotle didn't think that they, the arguments had form and matter, properly speaking. But then some centuries later, we have somebody like Alexander clearly thinking that it made good sense, that it was appropriate to apply this distinction to arguments. So what would that mean? What would it mean to say that a syllogism has a form and then matter? What's the difference between the form and the matter of a syllogism? Yeah, so so this is also something that went when there went a transformation over time. At first, people like uh, uh, Alexander and other ancient commentators, they usually uh, describe, they usually re uh, reserve the term form to talk about the figure of a syllogism. Right, so the figure of a syllogism has to do with the disposition of the terms. Right, so there's first figure, second figure, third figure. And, and so this does not have to do with the so-called logical terms. It does not have to do with terms like all or no, right? Mm -hmm. Which are now thought to be the logical terms. This, the, the, the logical terms, so to say, they define the mood of a syllogism, right? And the mood of a syllogism, the moods are Barbara, Salarent, etc. And the mood is really, you know, with the logical terminology in it. So it's very important to realize that at first, people were using the, 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 the concept of form to talk about, not about 
the so-called logical terminology in syllogistic arguments, but to talk about the disposition, the relative disposition of the non-logical terms in the argument. So just to make sure that that's clear, so the figure would be, for example, A, B, B, C, therefore A, C, and then an yeah. example of that, a mood, would be Barbara, which is all A are B, exactly. all B are C, therefore exactly. all A are C. Exactly. So you add so, the all to get the mood. Yeah, so for example, uh, Barbara and Celarent are both uh, first-figure syllogisms, but Barbara is all A is B, all B is C, therefore all A is C, and Celarent is all A is B, no B is C, therefore no A is C. Right. right? Listener can check the validity of that at home. Yes. <laughs> Homework. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So what did the medievals then do with this idea? Yeah. So, so um, they, a lot of things happen, right? So one of the main uh, 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 steps in the transformation, in the, this important transformation, because I mean, as I was saying, the schematic notion of the formal would then apply to syllogisms would then say that the form of a syllogism is the mood of the syllogism. And that's very different from what the, the ancient commentators were doing. And this transformation went stepwise. So, uh, as, so at some point already in the 12th century and early 13th century, you see some authors saying that the form of a syllogism cannot be understood in two ways, either as pertaining to the figure or as pertaining to the mood. And then, by analogy, they would also say that the matter of a syllogism could also be understood in two ways, either as pertaining to the propositions or as pertaining to the terms. Mm -hmm. And so, and so they, uh, there's this 12th century co anonymous commentary on the prior analytics, which is the oldest, uh, so anyway, so it's the only 12th century commentary on the prior analytics that we know of. And, and, and this commentary already talks about these two senses. And then, but doesn't say more, it doesn't say that one has priority over the other. And then already in the 13th century, you see texts talking about th these two senses of form and matter as pertaining to syllogisms, and then they talk about one being the proximate cause and the other being the remote cause. So there's already a, a, an important distinction there. But at that time, so there were still these two senses, right, of the form and matter of syllogisms. When you get to the 14th century, the sense of form as pertaining to the figure of syllogisms is, not, is nowhere to be seen anymore. And then we really moved to what we, uh, what I call the schematic notion of the formal, and the other notion of the formal, which pertain to the disposition of the terms and not to the logical terminology, is no longer to be seen. And so, on the schematic understanding, the idea is that when you actually substitute words like giraffe or animal into the argument form, giraffe and animal would play the role of matter. And the scheme is the form. Exactly. So if you take Barbara again, right? So Barbara, the schematic version of Barbara is all A is B, all B is C, therefore all A is C. Mm -hmm. I can replace whatever terms for A, B, and C in a systematic way, and I would produce an argument that has the property of necessary truth preservation, mm -hmm. which means that if the premises are true, then the conclusion will necessarily be true as well. So if I say to you, all cows are blue, all blue things are made of stone, the conclusion is all cows are made of stone. And this is a valid argument, even though the premises are false. Right, okay. Well, if we take this seriously, this idea that arguments have matter and form, then it seems 
that we have a kind of metaphysical understanding of what an argument is, just as in the case of, say, a giraffe, my favorite example, <laughs> instead of cow. Uh, you have the soul playing the role of form, you have the body playing the role of matter, but then there's this very powerful unity between the two, so that's why you get one animal or one giraffe. Can we conceive of syllogisms or arguments in general having this kind of unity, this very strong unity that comes from somehow inserting matter into form? Because it actually it seems sort of like, well, I could kind of chuck any terms into that scheme. And so it's quite accidental, the relationship between a particular scheme and a particular set of terms that are supposedly playing the role of matter. Yeah, so the first question, if you're serious about thinking about the metaphysics of arguments, the first question you need to ask yourself is whether arguments are the kinds of entities to which one can attribute form and matter. As I was saying, it looked like Aristotle thought that they were not, and then later the, the ancient commentators thought that they were, and one a hypothesis that somebody put forward to me once, but I haven't investigated, and to my knowledge nobody has investigated yet, is that uh, the uh, stoic idea of lecta, right, of uh, arguments as being viewed as more reified entities, that might have played a role in these developments, right? And then you think, okay, they're really entities in a robust sense, and therefore you can apply the, the metaphysical notions of form and matter to them. But as a matter of fact, both in the medieval times and in current discussions, a lot of people, I think, uh, don't take the, the metaphysical uh, perspective sufficiently seriously. So on the one hand, they import many of the presuppositions, for example, the idea of un uniqueness of form, right? Which so an argument can have only one logical form. This is a metaphysical presupposition that makes sense in the context of, say, Aristotelian halomorphism, but does it make sense, you know, when you're talking about arguments? And so my, one of my worries is that a lot of people import these metaphysical presuppositions without having thought hard enough about them, right? So in an uncritical way. In the medieval times, what you see is that a lot of authors take the connection, when they're talking about form and matter with respect to logic, they take the connection uh, to metaphysical holomorphisms quite lightly. So for them, it's just a convenient way to, you know, refer to certain logical properties of arguments, you know, use the term law, matter, form, without making stronger metaphysical claims. So that's, uh, that you see that a lot. But there are authors who take the metaphysical perspective on arguments very seriously. And the main example of that will be Robert Kilwerby, who's a 13th century author. And in many senses, one of the most sophisticated, you know, 13th century uh, philosophers working in the Aristotelian tradition. So what he did, uh, I always say he's more. He was. He wanted to be more Aristotelian than Aristotle himself. What he wanted to do was to unify the different doctrines uh, that Aristotle had in different fields and put them all together. So Kirby is very serious about uh, thinking about arguments as having form and matter from a metaphysical perspective, and it's very very interesting what he does and very sophisticated. So, but so there was some of that too, and all these difficult questions, these difficult metaphysical questions that you were raising with respect to unity. A former he he deals all with all of them. He's very very committed to you know thinking hard about these matters. It seems to me like an obvious objection against that sort of view that these arguments are actually metaphysical entities that have a form and a matter is that there's just various ways that you can formalize a given argument, and so something like Kilwardby's position sounds to me like it implies that there's just one right way to formalize a given argument. And I'm wondering why anyone would say that. It's the idea that there can only be one reason 
why a given argument is valid and that the form tells you why the argument yeah. is valid. Because it seems to me that, you know, if you took a certain argument and you could say, well, I can formalize it in three different ways and all the formalizations are valid, then what's, what's the, the problem? Pro yeah, what's yeah. The problem? yeah, so I mean, there, are, uh, there, as I said, you know, if you take seriously the idea that a form and matter is applied to arguments and uh, in a metaphysical sense, then you might start thinking that form is something truly inherent in the argument as such on a deep ontological level. And then the question arises whether, uh, you know, plurality of forms is possible at all. And this is actually an interesting debate in 13th century metaphysics, which, you know, where, where people like Rufus and some other authors were saying that it made perfect sense to talk about a plurality even of substantial forms in one and the same substance. I think this is crazy. I mean, <laughs> me being the Aristotelian that I am, I think that form is the principle of unity and matter are the parts that the principle of unity ties together. So there cannot be multi a multiplicity of uh, of forms, but some of these authors thought that it made sense. So in that sense, if you if you are uh, if you think that uh, form can be there can be only one form in one entity, and you're serious about the idea of arguments having form and matter, then the conclusion will be that there can only be one form, correct form for an argument, because this is an inherent metaphysical property of the argument itself. And you, as a logician, you are in the business of discovering this pre existing you know entity in the argument itself but if you take you know a, a lighter perspective on all these things and you think well it's not really something that's really there right you know in an independent way but it's something that you can attribute to an argument because then it makes it convenient to study this particular argument from a particular perspective and so i i what i want to say is that a lot of the people who think you know discuss these matters in contemporary philosophy of logic import some of these assumptions like the assumption of uniqueness and the assumption of a pre-existing uh, entity but in an uncritical way without mm -hmm. being aware of the metaphysical presuppositions that are grounding these 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 assumptions and so that's one of the things i did with my work was try to be critical of that it sounds like there's quite a lot of variety then in the way that medieval philosophers think about even this one issue the question of whether syllogisms have form and matter and if so what would be the form what would be the matter and i, I was going to finish the whole discussion by asking you whether it makes sense to talk about medieval logic as being formal and what that would mean for medieval logic. But now I'm wondering whether the answer is just, well, it depends because it depends what formal means and the medieval philosophers themselves had different views about what formal means. And so Kilwardby's logic would be formal in maybe a different sense than say Occam's because I presume Occam wouldn't have these kind of very robust metaphysical assumptions about what a syllogism is. Well, so the the thing is that in any case, uh, you need to understand, and that's very important, that uh, medieval logicians, nobody thought, nobody, that logic deals only with the formal. This is a very important difference between current thinking about logic and medieval thinking about logic. So, for example, there is a distinction that you find in the 14th century uh, you know, for example, with Buridam, between um, formal consequence and material consequence. And so modern logicians would say that only formal consequences fall under the scope of logic these days, and material consequences are not logic. Right? So they would say that an argument like Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal, falls out of the scope of logic because it's merely materially valid. 
the medieval authors would never think of restricting the scope of logic to only to what even they would call formal. So that's a very important thing to keep in mind. But this being said, what you can do is look at medieval logic, uh, uh, either looking for their own conceptions of formality or using our modern conceptions of formality and trying to see whether what we call formal, you know, if these properties are also to be seen in, in medieval logic. Right. So these are two different things. So, so I would say that certainly with respect to the formal schematic, that's already there. Right? But then again, that doesn't exhaust the scope of logic for the medieval logicians, right? mm -hmm. whereas some, some modern people might think it does. But even if you think about the formal as computable, right, which is not a notion that they had in any way, uh, some of the theories, uh, for example, Occam's supposition theory, and I've written on that too, in a sense, what, what he's after is, is uh, you know, principles of uh, interpretation of propositions that can be applied in a more or less mechanical way. And in that sense, there is a sense in which that theory is formal in the sense of computable, which is a modern notion of formality, mm -hmm. right? Just because it's about not involving the ingenuity or insight of the interpreter. So one of the things that I, uh, one of the terms that I use to describe Occam's uh, theory of supposition is as formal hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. right? so, so there are all kinds of ways in which you can ask this question. And yeah, I guess, you know, we probably don't have the time to talk about all of them, but just, just to give a glimpse of, of the, you know, the complexity, but also of the relevance of the question. Right. Okay. Well, um, in fact, we are out of time now. So I'm going to ask the listeners to use their computers to join me again next time when I'll be talking about Albert the Great, who's the next big figure of medieval philosophy that we need to cover. Um, for now, though, I'll thank Katerina dutel Novais for coming on the show. Thank you very much. And please join me again next time to hear about Albert the Great on the history of philosophy without any gaps. Mm -hmm.